Well, God is good, and uh, I need you to remember that as you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Some of you would find that funny. Um, all right, Romans chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, you'll need it today. If you need a hardback black ESV Bible, there should be one near you in the pew. As we uh, are continuing through our study in the book of Romans, and uh, the way it's been going the first eight chapters of Romans, we've heard about how we are made righteous, how it's not anything that we have done is what God's done on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And it has been good news after good news after good news after good news. And then it ended with some great news that nothing can separate us from the love of God for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So high note, then 9, 10, and 11. And some of you have been like wringing your hands, just waiting for me to get to these chapters. And 9, 10, 11 all go together. These complex chapters all go together to answer some rhetorical questions that Paul would be receiving during this time. And so you, uh, you get here and then you, you kind of have this issue of reading comprehension. Anybody have a problem with reading comprehension? Man, I do. I was dyslexic as a child and I struggled to read just in general. And so I would concentrate just on reading and then I would finish the story and I would go, I have no idea what I just read. And uh, it really came uh, to a head when I took the ACT. Anybody take the ACT and you get the four, you get four stories and you got so much time to read these stories and answer all these questions. And I remember they said, there's five minutes left. And I was starting the second story and I was like, this is not going to be good. So as you get into this chapter, there's some reading comprehension that you're going to stop and say, wait, what? Wait, what? I'm not sure I'm following you here, Paul. I'm not sure I, I understand what you're saying. And so you might have some of these, wait, wait. If, if God is doing the saving, then why doesn't everyone get saved? Wait. If God is more committed to my salvation than I will ever be committed to him, then why do I fail so much? Wait. Wait. How can I be sure that what God has started in me, he will actually complete? Wait, wait. If God is calling people, if God is electing people, if God is choosing people for salvation, then why is he not choosing everyone? Wait. If God picked the nation of Israel to be his chosen people, then why are there so many Jews that are not believers? You get to this point in Scripture and you say, wait, I'm having a real difficult time understanding. Are you with me? And you're not alone because there are theologians for centuries who are exactly where we are. And so within 30 minutes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straighten it all out for you. <laughs> just not possible, right? It's just not possible. This chapter is one of the most extensive discussions in all of Scripture about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's free will. And there is a tension. It is a tennis match. Everybody, everybody been to a tennis match or you've watched people watching a tennis match where their heads are just doing this? This is what you're going to do today. You're like, Calvinism, free will. Calvinism, free will. Calvinism, free will. I'm so confused and I'm dizzy, okay? So what is going on here? This is where we jump into Scripture, and I'm going to be honest with you. My goal today is not to teach you my leanings in theology, though I have them. 
My goal is to teach Scripture literally, to just walk through it. And you cannot understand chapter 9 without chapter 10 and chapter 11. And there is no way possible that I can get through all three chapters in one sitting. I don't even think I can get through the one chapter in one sitting, and I'm going to try my best, but I'm going to watch the clock for you. So today is not some sermon antidote where I tell you how to be a better Christian or I give you three points to a better life. It's just not going to happen. usually doesn't happen that way here. And uh, today is going to be one of those where I, as the under-shepherd, not pet you with Scripture, but I'm going to push you with Scripture because you're going to have these, wait, what? Questions. So I'm going to pray, and then I usually read the entire section and then go back through, and it's just not possible today because I have no clue how far I'm getting. So we're just going to take it as we go. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is true. It is life. It is life-giving, and it is a gift. It is by your grace and by your mercy that we are able to stand here with it written in our hands that we are able to open it and read it and by the prompting of your spirit even begin to understand. God, you are a mysterious, mysterious God who loves us. God, awaken us to who you are today. Lead us and guide us according to your will. God, as we wrestle with your sovereignty and our responsibility, allow us to be a people who, who lean towards you, to choose you, who are willing to submit to you in all the things that we say and do. Father, I pray your blessings upon this congregation. I pray your blessings upon this church. I pray, God, that today as we walk out of here, we walk out of here with a greater view of you because you are so great and so wonderful. In Christ's name, amen. Paul begins with a burden for those who are lost. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen? Amen. Before we can ever have the theology of Paul, we have to have the heart of Paul. Paul is burdened by the fact that there are those who do not know Christ. Let me ask you, what burdens you? What grieves you? What causes you, as he puts it, great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Charles Spurgeon when teaching on this, said, get love for the souls of men. Then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat or about the crotchets of a family and the little disturbances that John and Mary may make by their idle talk. You will be delivered from petty worries. I need not further describe them if you are concerned about the souls of men. Get your soul full of a great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. How often are we consumed, worried, burdened, and frustrated with so many petty things when there are those all around us who do not know Jesus Christ. And so as Paul begins this very difficult section of answering these questions of, wait, what? He begins with, 
if we're going to talk about salvation, then we're going to talk about having a burden for those who need to be saved. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. The closer we grow to Christ, the more we will grow in compassion. And if your compassion for the lost is not growing, then I question whether or not you're growing closer to Christ. And I say that about myself. Because I can grow in all kinds of knowledge and understanding, but if I'm not growing in a, in a compassion for the lost, then I'm, I'm growing in, in knowledge and maybe not in Christ. Jesus himself, Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you look at the world and you look at the community that you live in and you look at your friends and your coworkers and your family members, do you have great compassion for those who are lost? This is the heart of Christ. In fact, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's desire and his will would be for all people to be saved. Well, then why aren't they saved? Well, there's a difference between the providential will of God and the moral will of God. We don't get to decide which is providential and we don't get to decide which is moral. We just get to listen to what he says is providential and what he says is moral. God's providential will falls into where we were last week in Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That God is working out all things that we are saved by God and God alone. That God is working out the salvation for those he foreknew and those he predestined and those he justified. This is what God is doing. There's, there's a providential will that God will accomplish what God has a, has a plan to accomplish. There is a purpose there's also a moral will that refers to man's responsibility and his holiness and his goodness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, does God's moral will always happen? No. We, we know that God's moral will for his people is often broken by the lack of responsibility that, that we take in, in our relationship with him. But it still remains the will of God. As Francis Chan said, some things may be part of God's desire for the world, and yet these desires can be resisted. God doesn't desire that people sin, but he allows it to happen because humans are moral agents who often make evil choices. God is not a puppet master who pulls everyone's strings and, to suit his will. This is difficult when you're thinking about the will of God. Verse 3, 4, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What a strong statement that Paul makes here. Paul, when he looks with compassion upon the crowds, upon Israel, and he thinks, man, these, these are my brothers, and these are my kinsmen, and not every single one of them knows Christ, then I would become accursed so that they would know Christ. I would take the punishment so that they could have salvation. I don't know if I'd be willing to say that. But this is the same mindset of Christ, that he would become cursed on a cross so that we could have salvation. This is what Moses would say in Exodus 32, 31 through 32. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. 
But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What a remarkable thought that Paul desires people to know Jesus Christ so much that he would even put his life on the line. And this is the life of Paul. If you watch what unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture, you see Paul willing to sacrifice everything so that some may hear the gospel and respond. That he would be beaten, that he would be thrown in jail, that he would be stoned, that he would be shipwrecked, that all of these things would happen so that some might hear the gospel and respond. We should desire the missiology of Paul, not just the theology of Paul. We should desire the heart of Paul more than the understanding of Paul. Yet here's the problem with modern evangelicalism as I see it. We have loads of people who want theological information without any missional application. We have loads of people who want the theology without the missiology. We have loads of people who will sit in Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and talk to believers about what they think the scripture means but never talk to an unbeliever about who Jesus Christ is. If we're going to talk about salvation, we're going to talk about the will of God, then we should start with the burden for those who are lost. That God has given us the good news. We've been given the good news for a purpose, not to sit on it, but to go and be sent with it. And this was the life of Paul, that he had such a deep, groaning compassion for those that it was an unceasing anguish in his heart for those who were lost. And if I could just stop right now and just pray that we would have that, what a difference it would make in our church and in our community and in our homes and in our families. Let's pray. Father, we repent because we know that we're far more concerned with petty issues that are not eternal issues. Father, we repent for how we sit on the good news and how we don't share it like we should. Father, we repent that we long for information without ever desiring the application. Father, I would pray that by your will and by your spirit, and by your purpose and by your plan, that you would implant an unceasing anguish within our hearts for those who are lost, so that we cannot remain silent. In Christ's name. Verse 4, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen? So as Paul looks at the Israelites, he says, look at all the blessings that they have been given. The adoption, the fact that God sovereignly selected an entire nation to receive his special calling so that they would be the instrument by which the entire world would know who he is. Exodus 19.6, for you shall be to me a kingdom priest and a holy nation. The glory 
Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Not only did he choose them to be the people, to be the instrument for the world to know who he is, but then his glory descended and was in their presence. The covenants that then God initiated a binding agreement and a binding covenant with them, a binding relationship with them through the Abrahamic covenant that they would be a blessed nation. The law that they were given, the Mosaic covenant, that they were given the very law of God, that I would be their God and they would be my people and this is the rules, this is what the ceremonial laws look like, the the purity laws look like, this is what all of these laws look like as I lead my people. They were given the will of God through the law, the worship. They were given the temple. They were given the instructions and the ability to make sacrifices that would cover their sins. What a remarkable gift. The promise and the patriarchs. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8 reads, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, your forefathers, that he would make you a people that through your lineage and through your race would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was born a Jew. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. To think that Israel was given all of these spiritual privileges, and yet they were not willing. You know, you could say that we've been given a lot of spiritual privileges. For many of us, we were raised in church. More than that, many of us were raised in Christian homes. We were, for some of us, our parents paid for Christian education we might have had godly parents and godly grandparents, maybe, maybe forefathers that poured into us. And yet, like Israel, sometimes we forfeit these blessings and we fail to be willing to surrender to Christ who is begging us to come to him. Oh, what a burden Paul had, but what a blessing it is for those who belong. Romans 9, 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 9, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, 
our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now we're getting into it, right? Wait. If all of these things were given to Israel, has God's word failed? Now Paul begins to answer that question. If God made all these promises, if God gave them the law, if God gave them the covenants, if God gave them this, this word that he had chosen them, and yet now there's some who are not willing to come to him, has his word failed? So Paul is going to give us three Old Testament illustrations to show that God's word is faithful and that he kept his word to Israel. The first one is this, the children of the promise are not by genealogy, but by governing. So he quickly says this in verse 6, but it is not though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. As David Guzik says, he says one meaning for the name Israel is governed by God, and so he's saying not all who are uh, of the genealogy of Israel are actually governed by God because they haven't submitted themselves to the governing of God. And so it would be the same as not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly a follower of Christ. And if you are from outside the south and you're moving to the south, you might figure this out pretty quick, that not everyone who says they're a Christian down here in the south is actually a Christian down here in the south. No amens on that. Okay, good. All right. So it's not about genealogy, it's about governing. And number two, he says, the children of the promise are not by manipulation, but by a miracle. So it's by those who have submitted themselves, the governing of God, and now it's by a miracle. So he goes on, verse 7, it's not, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This takes us back to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, you might want to flip there. I'm going to be referencing Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 about Abraham and the birth of his two sons. He had two sons, one Ishmael and one Isaac, born of two different women. You, many of you might remember this story. And so he is trying to manipulate the promise into existence by doing work of the flesh. It reads like this in Genesis 16, 1 through 2. Now Sarai, before her name was changed, Abram, before his name was changed, Abram's wife, had bore him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. What an interesting thought that they contrived this idea to bring about the blessing of God, and yet it did not. Ishmael was the firstborn, but he was born through the flesh, not through the promise. He was born through manipulation, not by miracle. So, verse, so Genesis 21, 1 through 5, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham 
a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of the son whom was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now listen, some time has passed. We've got some 14 years that has passed here between the birth of sons. And so they waited faithfully for the promise to be delivered. So you have one son, Ishmael, who was through the flesh. And now you have one son, Isaac, who was through faith. Because I don't need to give you a biology lesson to let you know that if you're 100 years old and you have a child, that's a miracle, right? That's a miracle. As another verse in the Bible says, they were as good as dead. They were so old, right? So what is happening here is that Paul now is describing that there were two births that represent two covenant individuals. Children's a promise and children's not a promise, right? So Ishmael represents the believer's firstborn, the first birth, born in the flesh. Every single person when they are born are born in the flesh. You're born in the flesh. Then there is a second birth that takes place. This would be represented with Isaac, represents second birth, born of the spirit. Jesus referred to this in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. Do you remember this? And he says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I have said to you, you must be born again. So if you're looking at God keeping his promise of who the children of Israel are, he's saying, listen, it's not by flesh that you enter the kingdom of God. It is by spirit, so you must be born again, born of spirit, because those of the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Ishmael also represents being born in slavery. He was born to the slave woman, and Isaac represents living in the freedom of the spirit by faith. Galatians, Paul would talk more about this in chapter 4, verses 22 through 26. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai of Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So what is being represented here is that to be a child of God means it's not about genealogy, it's about governing. There's a choice to submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also a rebirth that takes place, which is done by the Spirit. It's a miracle of God, not by works that you are saved, but by the Spirit of God by which you are saved. And number three, he says, here's another illustration. The children of the promise are not by performance, but by God's purpose. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved and Esau I hated you see it's easy for us to follow the first two illustrations but then when you get to this one it's a little more difficult it's difficult because you have to deal with the fact that there's a word hated here that just 
rubs you the wrong way. How could God hate someone like that? It's not necessarily the emotion of hating. It's the choice that is being made. And so verse 11 Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. This is important because it means that the decision was not based on merit. It's not that God looked into the future and saw how good one brother was going to be over the other brother and decided, well, I'll choose that one. Because if you read through scripture, you'll quickly realize that neither of these brothers were good because we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. And so... Jacob, who was the deceiver and a cheat and kind of sleazy, he embraced the promises of God and received a promised blessing. But Esau traded his inheritance for a bowl of soup. So Esau represents the one that God has not chosen. And all of the New Testament represents him as one who has chosen the lust of the flesh over the promises of God. Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The idea is not hatred as an emotion, but it's more of a idiom like Jesus would use when he told his disciples, if you want to follow after me, you must hate your family. By comparison, Jesus Christ has to be greater than every other love of your life. And simply, Paul is saying that God chose Jacob above Esau, not because of anything Jacob had done morally superior to Esau. The only reason Jacob received the promise was because of God's gracious choice and mercy. Charles Spurgeon would say, I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. Another woman came up to Charles Spurgeon and says, I cannot understand why God would say he hated Esau. Spurgeon replied, it's not my difficulty that he hated Esau It's my difficulty to understand how he could love Jacob. You get to this point and you think it's just baffling to think about salvation. So a baffling display of God's purpose through election. Verse 14 through 29. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then has he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make it make out of the same lump a vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make 
known his power, has endured with, with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Again, we get into the tennis match of your head going back and forth and back and forth. But what Paul is illustrating here is that salvation is not a matter of merit, but mercy. What shall we say then? This isn't fair. That's not fair. How can God choose some and not others? How can God harden some and not harden others? That's not fair. You don't want fair. Because we all deserve judgment. What you want is mercy. And you can't determine what God says he wants to give mercy to and who he says he doesn't want to give mercy to. We don't get to answer back as part of the clay to the master. It's not like our three-pound fallen brains who have lived on earth for as long as we've lived can tell a God who created all things, who is everlasting, that I don't think you're doing it right. You see, no one deserves to be saved. No one. You're not good. I, I, don't, I don't care how many trophies you got as a kid that said you're good. I don't care if you were in Awanas and you got ribbon after ribbon after ribbon. You're not good. You're fallen. You're depraved. You're sinful. And if it wasn't for the mercy and the grace of God, you would be, you would be lost without any hope. No one does good. No one seeks God. No, no one is righteous. No, not one. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy? Praise God that he has mercy. Because none of us deserve it. J.D. Greer says it this way, I know Scripture and God never contradict themselves, but that doesn't mean you and I have the capacity to resolve it It all in our relatively tiny little minds. After all, we're talking about the ways of God. We should expect some mystery. John Stott, the wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. For we deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment. If we receive what we deserve, which is judgment, or if we receive what we do not deserve, which is mercy, in either case, God is unjust. Is God unjust? If therefore anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. The autonomy uh, contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve but it is consistent with Scripture, history, and experience. Verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For the very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How is it just for God to harden some and show mercy to others? If God is showing mercy to whomever he wills, then do we even have a choice in the matter? 
these are questions that arise in our brain as we go back and forth, that yet Israel would not come to Christ. God's glory and all the earth is the motivation behind his mercy and his judgment. And though we may not understand the hardening and the choice and the election and the things that scriptures deal with because of the mystery, we have to come to a point where we understand that the glory of God is the motivating factor for everything. And he is worthy to be glorified. Exodus, as it reads, 421, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do, uh, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Exodus 8.15 But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 9.12 But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Commentators go back and forth on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Who's, who hardened first or did God plan the entire time to harden his heart so that he would show his glory? It's going to be a back and forth and how you read scripture and how you interpret it. But uh, I like where Tim Keller lands. God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was a giving him over to his own stubbornness. Pharaoh decided to resist God. God reinforced him in that position. God gave Pharaoh what he chose. When God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. If God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us much more than a hint here, but it is a very suggestive hint. For the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God, God's chosen course to save some and leave others will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than any other scheme we can imagine. We may not understand it. We may wrestle with it. But we have to be okay with the fact that God's glory is what is preeminent. Whatever God does, whatever God's will will be for his glory. And he is worthy. Because salvation is not a matter of merit, but mercy. We know this from Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is not about merit, it is about mercy. And praise God that he is a merciful God. God uses human will and secondary clauses to sovereignly accomplish his plan. And so I'll close with a beautiful hope for those who believe. Let's finish out the chapter real fast. Even us whom has, 
he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. From the very beginning, Paul has been showing us from Old Testament scripture that a remnant was always God's plan. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God's choosing is far more graciously inclusive than it is genealogically reclusive. And if you're a Gentile, you should say, praise the Lord. It actually is far more inclusive than you could ever imagine. Because he is calling people who were not his people to be his people. He is doing everything he can for his glory and for the salvation of those who would call upon his name. And the name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord. And those who will submit and bow their knee before him as lordship will be called children of God. Amen? It's not a matter of grace. It's a matter of grace, not race, is what Tony Marita put. So, I'm going to end with Hebrews 3.15. As it is said today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, if you come to the point of realizing that maybe, maybe I've been raised with all of this spiritual blessing in my life, but I've never said that I want him to govern my life, that today's the day that you bow your knee and say, I want you to be Lord of my life. Jesus Christ, save me from my sins. Have mercy on me because I will never be good enough. Have mercy on me because I'm a sinner and I am lost without you. And those who call upon his name will not be put to shame. That is the promise that is made for all who believe. Will you bow your heads? Gracious Father, I come to you. I thank you so much for your love, your great love, your great mercy. And Father, we do not understand your ways because your ways are higher than our ways. But God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've shown us your glory, you've shown us your son, you've given us your word, and you've given us everything we need to know to point us to bow our knee before you today. Father, I pray that you would implant in our heart a desire and a willingness to surrender, to repent. Father, I pray that if there's some who don't know you, that today that they would surrender their life to you and find freedom, find life in the Spirit, away from the flesh. In Christ's name.
Amen.